strong instinctual territorial uh, instinct system, except that we don't have it as physical territory. We now, uh, with humans, have an intellectual territory in the sense of this is my home territory intellectually. And so people in that religion are not part of my territory. They're outside. They, uh, they are those kind of things that we want to bark at. People who are a different color, skin. They're not our people. They come from some other territory. And so those are the kind of people we bark at. All right. So now we're understanding that this stuff about racism and greed and holding things together, as well as uh, going along to getting along, all of these things that we do are instinctual. Hmm. Instinctual, which means that we need to have a pretty hefty frontal cortex or a human part of the brain that we would call the source of wisdom to override these instincts because these instincts are quite dangerous. But that the instincts kept us alive as a species. So you can think of these instincts as something like the automatic pilot on an aircraft. Hmm, that's interesting. It looks like that the video started over again. Um, so uh, the automatic pilot on an airliner will uh, make the job of the pilot very easy. He can go to sleep and the airline just goes right along. But it can go into a mountain, it can go into turbulence, it can go into a flock of birds, it can hit another airplane, there's all kinds of things that the automatic pilot is not capable of managing. And so if the pilot wakes up and takes control of the airplane, he's going to have to control the whole airplane. He can't just have half automatic pilot. No, he's going. If he's going to have to manage the pitch and the roll and the R and the uh, <laughs> attitude and all of that by himself now. So this is basically what we need to do: is to see that we are on automatic pilot for most of our lives. That people, in fact, do operate instinctually. This is the reason why education is thought to be an advantage, because if people have no education, then they revert back to their old natural instincts. Yeah. Uh, and so these, these instincts, then, we can look at in the Buddhist context of uh, underlying tendencies that then give rise to the four modes of clinging. Now, the best part about that is, is that there's only four modes of clinging, which are these four instincts. And if we wake up and are not clinging to these four instincts, then we are uh, human. But if we cling to one of these uh, four uh, modes of clinging, then we'll wind up in a woeful state. These woeful states are actually analogies 
that come out of the old Hinduism. One of the analogies is to be in hell, reborn in hell. That's one of the destinations to be reborn in. But we look at hell in the sense of anger, frustration, anxiety, and that you can see the hell quality of it is because when we're angry, is we cannot tolerate the situation. And so it's a hell state. We'll do anything to get out of it. Another of the uh, uh, woeful states that associate with the four modes of cleaning um, is what we would call uh, grasping and clinging to materialism, which we can Desire. look at. Sorry. Which we can look at as greed. <clears throat> Right? We want things. We want to hold them. We want to cling to them. We want to hang on to things. Why? Because we think wrongly that our material possessions will either one make our life easier or it will protect us. Yeah. So our materialism then, when it is a, um, a woeful state, um, is basically... The, the term is used for a preta or a hungry ghost. And the, and this, uh, the pictorial is, is that it's like a huge pot with a tiny little hole. And that hole is the mouth. And that the preta keeps sucking through that hole trying to get what it wants, but it never feels like it has got enough. It's never filled up. Right? Um, this is when we get into the mode of living that we call um, life sucks. Why does life suck? Life sucks because we keep sucking. <laughs> if we would stop sucking, then life wouldn't suck. Why do we keep sucking? It's because it's instinctual to keep sucking, to keep wanting, to keep grabbing a hold of things. And this comes out of that uh, procreation instinct. And one of the things that we want to grab hold to for men is a girl. We think that we can be safer and secure or whatever if we've got another human being that we can grasp onto and own. And in fact, we generally have great big ceremonies to prove that I own her. <laughs> I bought her from her daddy and I had to give him a television and a motorbike and three acres of land. And so she's mine. Okay, this is the whole idea of marriage from the from the get go, is ownership of property, and that a whole lot of stuff about, especially in the United States, have to do. Almost all of our laws have to do with property, ownership and control of property, which is instinctual. This is called the preta. So we have the hell world and the preta. Another woeful state is called the animal state. Well, the animal state actually comes right out of the, um, uh, the nesting instinct that we go along to get along. We herd together. We do what we're told to do. The children are told to go to school and, and do their homework and all of that, and no child wants to do that. And so 
we as an adult, we get into the position of looking at things as duty. In the sense that if you do your duty, you can get along. And if you don't do your duty, you're going to get thrown out of society. You're going to be an outcast. You're going to get thrown thrown out. And so uh, this woeful state of being an animal then comes out of the instinct of uh, the nest or the herd. And you'd be surprised at how often that actually affects your own behavior of doing what's expected of you from society. And then the last one is uh, uh, what is called the Asura. Uh, this is actually in some systems considered heaven or a heavenly state, but basically it's not because the Asuras are very much like the Titans. That in fact, uh, you can see the word sure, and what you recognize is, is that the Asuras are warriors who were afraid to go to battle, all dressed up and no place to go. An example of that is the child who walks out on the stage, he's dressed as a tree, and he has only one line, I am a tree. But he freezes in public, <laughs> and he cannot say his line. <laughs> All right. So performance in public and being around others um, has to do with um, feeling like we're invaded. This is that... Um, uh, territorial instinct and you can basically you can imagine it in the phrase of all dressed up but afraid to go and so now we have these basic deeds <clears throat> of fear and that fear then brings rise to in, in fact anger the bottom of anger is almost always fear uh, if someone's really angry because they've lost something, and then their their mate or someone in the fa family uh, locates it and says, "Here it is," now he he's no longer angry because he doesn't have that underlying feeling of loss and fear, etc., like that. Okay, so this is this actual where these underlying tendencies come from or these four modes of clinging are actually instinctual behavior. And that our job is basically to grow up out of that, to grow up, to stop acting like the child that we were born as, full of instinctual behavior, and start acting wisely, moment yeah. by moment. Okay, so these four modes of clinging <clears throat> There's another point to that, and that is, is that um, in Western Buddhism, they have the kind of an idea, uh, the, they use the word attachment, as if all attachments are somewhat, somehow bad. You've heard that, I'm sure. Don't attach to things, right? Yeah. That's not the teaching of the Buddha. In fact, uh, there are suttas, one of them in particular, the name of it is One Fortunate Attachment. And I can give you a whole lot of things that are really valuable, wholesome, and worthy of attaching to. 
you could almost go so far as to say that we should, in fact, attach to the wholesome and to not attach to the unwholesome. Well, all of these four modes of clinging are all unwholesome ways of doing things. So if we can begin to recognize that our thought patterns are uh, bound up with our feelings and our feelings are bound up with the body, that, that we're an integral whole system here and that our thoughts will, in fact, uh, create feelings, but our feelings and our moods will affect our thoughts. Yes. Yeah, I see that. Okay. This is, in fact, step eight of Anapanasati, which is kind of an advanced practice, but to see the relationship between our thoughts and our feelings. Yeah. Because our thoughts and our feelings uh, uh, interconnect with each other at that level of hindrance. An example of that is when one is sick, then the hindrance of tiredness will come. Um, Another example of that would be um, in a debate. They have a rule about ad hominem attack, and which means you, that the, the debater cannot attack his opponent, that he can only attack the topic of conversation. Because they know that if you can get, uh, if you can attack someone, then their instinctual feelings will come up, and that will interfere with their intelligent argument. Um, uh, an, a, another example of that would be in a fighting situation, and the uh, the biggest joke about it is WWE, the wrestling, that before the wrestling starts, the guys get out and scream about how bad the other guy is. Do you know what I'm talking about? You smile, so thank you. All right. <laughs> so it, you can see that that's actually something that's natural in the sense of a real fight, if you can get your opponent all angry and frustrated and upset and whatnot, then he's not going to be able to perform very well. Yeah. Possibly the biggest one that I know of is the um, uh, World Chess Championship of 1972 between Boris Spassky and Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer was a good chess player. But he was nothing compared to Boris Spassky. But when he got into the world championship, uh, Boris Spassky, he had only one tool. He was a one-trick pony, and that was he was the grandmaster of chess out of Russia. Bobby Fischer had other tools in his bag, and one of them was psychology. And so he would do things that would upset Boris, and that's how he won. What did you do? One of the things is, is like, um, in the rule of chess, if you touch a piece, you've got to use it. You've got to move it. What Bobby Fisher would do is he would hover his hand over a piece and not touch it. And he would hold his hand there while he was looking at all the rest of the board, and then he would move another piece, which completely confounded Spassky, because Spassky was expecting him to move the piece that he had his hand hovered over. 
<laughs> Another thing that he would do is he would stand up and walk around while it was Spassky's move and stand right behind him. In fact, look right over his shoulder. Very intimidation. Um, invade his space. Just like Donald Trump did with Hillary Clinton in the debates. <laughs> right? Getting her discombobulated because he was literally stalking her while they were on stage together. All right. That's a really, really clear example now of this stage eight of, an, of Anapanasati of how the feelings affect the mind so that we can't think when we're feeling. Or that feelings will be the result of thinking. In other words, you can get yourself worked up. We do that a lot. Uh, I would go so far as to say that the Anapanasati can be summed up in this way. You talked yourself into feeling bad. Now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good. That we can, in fact, control our feelings with our thoughts. That we can, in fact, begin to have wholesome thoughts. And the wholesome thoughts that we have will then allow us to start feeling good. This is the quality of the uh, Satipatthana. (laughs) And so if we can remember to talk to ourselves into feeling good, that's actually a skill to be developed. And as it develops further, not only do we tell ourselves that it's okay and then we're having happy thoughts, but we begin to feel that way also. Yeah, to me that sounds like metta. Metta is the result. Right, yeah. And yet many... You've been taught that. Metta is normally in our uh, Western Buddhism, it's taught as a practice. Yeah. I just used that we we talked about this last time but I just used that as a like I understand that there's some I don't know what the word is misunderstanding between uh the language and and the practice and what some people say metta is or what it what it isn't or whatever but I I was just I, I understand that metta when you say that it's the result I understand what you're pointing towards I just mm-hmm. use that as a, a, like, I use that as a placeholder for sort of describing the whole process of wholesome thoughts, of like purposefully cultivating wholesome thoughts in the mind to then give rise to the Brahma, a- any of the Brahma Viha, or Metta, really, essentially. All right. Well, guess what? When you talk about the Brahma Viharas, we're actually talking about how does one who has a pure, happy mind, how does he relate to the world? Or what is it going to be like when the dry log is put back in the bog? Well, if it's on fire, then it's just going to be on fire. (laughs) If it's on well, fire enough. 
hopefully, right? That's the point. Uh, well, actually, no. What we're looking at is is that all of the concepts of meta have to do with, and in fact, they do have the six points of the compass, which you probably are familiar with. Yeah. In other words, you have the four north, south, east, west, plus above and below. And that the, the analogy is, is that to your side is going to be your family and your friends. In front of you are going to be the people that you deal with in business. The people behind you are there to stab you in the back. The people above you are um, uh, court, uh, priest, um, intellectuals, professors, you know, that kind of people, whoever you put above you. And those that are below are like your servants or um, your hired hands, your uh, that kind of thing, employees. And so these are the six stations, but the point that we're making here is, is that the Brahma Viharas have to do with how you're going to live in the world. The word Vihara actually means, and it's used a lot in the Pali. Uh, it's a verb, uh, and uh, the you can see um, the word V and Har. The word har there, or hara, is in fact where we get our word heart. And V means in the heart. So the viharas, Brahma viharas, would be like dwelling. Or this is where we live, or this is how we stay. And so in Sri Lanka, they call the, uh, the Buddhist temples there, they call them a vihara. In Thai, they call them wat. But the word Wat is nothing but the word Vihara shortened down. <laughs> it's, been, it's the word Vihara with a meat cleaver. <laughs> and so it's been chopped up. So that's, uh, by the way, the word, uh, the letter V is not in part of the Thai language that they have a, a W. Uh, so when you see the letter V, because many of the things in Thai came from uh, originally German, so uh, there is a road in Bangkok called Sukhumvit, except that it's not Sukhumvit, it's Sukhumwit, because they have the V sound is said like a W. So uh, back to the idea then about the Brahma Viharas, the Brahma Viharas are that which we relate to as the outside world. So you could go so far then as to say the Brahma Viharas are our performance and then our play. The practice is something different. Um, there is, in fact, a sutta. Um, let's see, which, what number is it? Gosh, I've forgotten. I know it's in the Samyutta Nikaya in the 46, but I've forgotten the actual sutta number. Now, the 46 group is actually on the seven factors of enlightenment, the Sambhojana. And yet this uh, sutta is a metta sutta. And in this sutta, uh, some monks run across uh, some practitioners from another group. And that, that group says, come now, listen. The Buddha himself teaches for the mind to become free from hindrances and then practice metta. 
Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. And so it's a long section because it goes through this with the seven or the six stations. Uh, then they ask the question, or the, uh, next they say, we too practice this. We practice removing the hindrances from the mind, and then uh, we practice uh, metta and karuna mudita upeka. Uh, and so then they ask the question, what is different between what the Buddha teaches and what we practice? So these guys didn't answer that question. They left and they went to the Buddha, and then they give that same big question again about after the hindrances are removed, then we practice metta with the, seven, the six stations, and then um, all of that. What is the difference? And the Buddha makes a very, very particular thing about uh, what is the cause or conditions? What is the apex? And what is the end of metta? And basically what he's talking about is, is that in the metta practice by itself, it does not have the seven factors of enlightenment, the sambojana, which means unremitting mindfulness, unremitting investigation, which both of those are missing. Maybe you could say that because the hindrances are not there, that you did some uh, mindfulness and some investigation, then followed by unremitting uh, right effort becomes energetic, becomes easy. And with that, then comes uh, great joy or pity. Now, pity in this sense is pity sukha. They're together. Yeah. Uh, and with that comes complete relaxation. With that relaxation, then comes opeka, and with opeka comes the mind that is completely organized and uh, uh, unified, the unified mind, ekasita. So the unification of mind, also known as sama area samati, or right organization of mind, is the ultimate to where in the Brahma Viharas, no, it's actually upeka is their top drawer. So let's look at opaca for a moment. The way that I define opaca is that it's like sea legs. Many people will call it balance. But um, I'll use the term sea legs yeah. in the sense that uh, the old captain of his large fishing boat can get from one end of that boat to the other without any incident, without any problems at all. But a landlubber who gets on that boat and he's at the bow, he can't get to the stern without having an episode or an event or an experience. One of the events he might have is banging into the wall. One episode he has might be that he has to grab a hold of the ropes. Another experience he might have is heaving over the side or maybe even going over the side. Why? Because he doesn't have his ability to balance. He doesn't have his sea legs. And so we can think then of the uh, upeka is actually very difficult to get from just saying may all beings be happy. Because those beings out there are like uh, a ship at sea in a storm. A lot of turbulence. 
And so we can say that the Brahma Viharas are actually ways that we can put the actual practice of Anapanasati into practice with the world. Now, the Buddha says that Anapanasati is done or practiced for the fulfillment of the uh, Sambhoj, uh, the, the four foundations Satipatthana. Pardon? That's what I said, the four foundations of mindfulness. Yes. And that the Satipatthana is practiced for the fulfillment of the seven factors of enlightenment. But if you look in, in the Satipatthana Sutta, it doesn't talk about the seven factors of enlightenment it, so much. It talks about the Four Noble Truths, and especially the Eightfold Noble Path. But when you understand that the Eightfold Noble Path or the, is just a method, and the fulfillment of that method, in other words, when you're able to do those things, though, that's when they become factors of awakening. And that the key ingredient for uh, the factors of awakening is unremitting. And this is an important word, unremitting. It doesn't mean that it's there all the time. It just keeps coming back. That's the way we want to look at sati. Number one is unremitting mindfulness. Can we keep coming back to it and coming back to it and coming back to it? Can yeah. we keep investigating? Can yeah, we I, can Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, yeah, I, no, it's, I, sorry, I didn't mean to stop you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, I, I, I have, I have that, like, that, my, that experience, the experience of, uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you want to say it's unremitting, but just the experience of sati for me and, like, over my years of practice has changed and, um, just, but where it's at now, um, yeah, I just remember maybe a year or so ago that it, this sense of mindfulness shifting for me to where it was like something that I couldn't shake off. Like I, I it, it became clear to me in awareness that it was, it was still important to practice, but that mindfulness was just coming on its own seemingly like it, it was just coming and uh coming back and coming you know back, now coming back. <laughs> yeah and now i still try to i mean i don't know i i i i still try to strengthen it as much as possible but there is this sense of even if yeah, there's just this deepening sense of trust that I have that it that mindfulness will establish itself at some point. It's just there. Um, then it's yeah. establishing now. All yeah. right. Let's let's look at Sati in two different respects. One is the frequency, and the other one is the depth or the height of it. All right. Most meditation students, when they're practicing, they think that they've got enough sati when they just merely wake up a bit. Uh, so the analogy then is uh, you're laying in bed through the night and you wake up. You wake up, but you don't get up. You just wake up. All right. 
what that means is is that the mind is not fully waken woke up yet um actually an interesting question is why do people get out of bed when you wake up in the morning why do you get out of bed Because, I don't know, because of dukkha, probably. Well, we can look at it from a couple of reasons. One is, is that when we're fully alert, fully awake, why not? It's only when we're not really awake yet that we stay in bed. And there's a really, really profoundly important point about this. And that's called the modern alarm clock with a snooze alarm. <laughs> what is that snooze alarm? That snooze alarm shows, and the, almost everyone will use it, that when we first wake up, it's not a sufficient wake up. We haven't woken up enough yet to be fully awake. Once we're fully awake, generally nobody wants to stay in bed. So that's kind of a hard question to ask because it's kind of um, uh, loaded in the sense of why to get up. The answer to that is if I'm fully awake, why should I stay in bed? <laughs> Which is exactly the same thing as when we're fully awake, why should we stay in the hindrances? If we're fully awake. Now, a lot of students think that, in fact, I've actually seen articles in um, Lion's War about this in the sense of uh, how to teach meditation. You, you wake up and you look at what the mind's doing. And you get great insight from seeing what the mind is doing. Yeah. And that's just what they call meditation. Ah. Looking at what the mind is doing is just looking at hindrances. And we've been doing that our whole life. We're not really fully woke up. And in fact, if we wake up just enough to see that these are hindrances, as for example, Goenka says that when the mind wanders away from the breath, he's talking about that. Never mind, start again, which means now we're woke up enough to actually come back to the breath. Many, many students will wake up to recognize that they're not watching the breath, but they haven't woken up enough to come back to the breath. And mm -hmm. so they will have thoughts, hindering thoughts like, oh, this is hard, or this is a monkey mind, or meditation is difficult to do. No, it's not. But why do we have the thought that is difficult to do? It's because we felt like a failure. Because after all, I'm supposed to be watching my breath and I can't do that. So I feel like a failure. Except that the mind has been in the, in the state of wandering mind our whole lives. That's its normal state, the wandering mind. Yeah. But sati, waking up enough to it, is enough to stop that wandering mind and to bring it to heal, to domesticate it, to domesticate the mind. And how we do that is by tethering the mind to the breath, just like an, uh, a Tusker elephant is going to be trained by tethering it. You rope it down. 
make it so that it can't move. Yeah. And then it will stop being so agitated. Okay, and the Buddha actually uses uh, elephants as an analogy. One of them is in Sutta number 125. So the, uh, the idea of the Tusker elephant has to be tied down. Yeah, that piece. Go ahead. I was going to say that's been, I think I mentioned to this to you in our last conversation. I don't remember, but I've mostly practiced, um, done most of my meditation practices has been, has been practicing metta. And then recently I've, I've kind of switched to practicing Anapanasati and the, what I was going to say related to that, the point that you just brought up has just been the, my subjective experience between the difference, the differences between like the felt experience of those two practices and just seeing how with Anapanasati there seems, there seems to be more like calm in the mind um, that is just impacting my day-to-day reality differently than than the practice of of metta, but I'm still trying to find. Um, I don't know. It's like with metta, the joy is easier to access. The joy is right there because that's kind of like the purpose of it but it feels less stable but with anapanasati the there's more calm and it feels more stable but there's not as much joy and so i'm trying to i'm trying to access that more with the tips that i've heard you mention of you know reframing that moment of when when mindfulness appears right then then to use that as as a time to kind of give the mind a cookie (laughs) to 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 bring about joy yeah uh-huh. more yeah the buddha had the phrase and in fact it's it seems um evident to many of the thai monks that i know uh that this one phrase was absolutely instrumental in the buddha putting together his whole system of dukkha dukkha naroda the four noble truths uh, and the Eightfold Noble Path, and most specifically, Paticca Samuppada, that you can, you've probably dependent heard origination. of the term. A dependent origination is actually a full-on unpacking of the Second Noble Truth. Yes. And this phrase, aha, I see you, Mara, <laughs> is, the, is the key point. Okay, aha, uh-huh. I see you feelings, I see you thoughts. But by seeing these thoughts, we also separate ourselves from them. Yeah. We separate ourselves out. So if I'm angry and I'm asleep, then the anger owns me, and we use phrases like I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm upset. But when we have full-on sati, that means that we do the investigation, we see what's going on, we recognize this is unwholesome, and we draw out. Yeah. And then right. we say, aha, I see you. <laughs> aha, I see you. Now that's a, a disassociation. 
Right. Normally we associate and think that my thoughts are me. My feelings are me. I, no. I, yeah. I had a radical experience of, of this. <laughs> yeah. Seeing, seeing this very clearly in my life. So that aha, I see you, Mara, is actually part of gladdening the mind. Aha, I'm waking up. Aha, I can see what's going on. That's a major point then that uh, will give the mind a cookie or gladden the mind. Okay, so metta in its um, actual usage of the word is how you treat others. How you treat others is with kindness. That in fact, the the, um, uh, the often translated way of saying it is loving kindness. I'm quite willing to take an axe to that loving. Yeah. Because we don't need it. Why? Because almost always the love has to do with desire. It has to do with wanting something. I want your life to be good. I want you to be happy. I want you and you and you may all beings be happy. But if I don't have happiness, then that is empty. And yet that's how we begin in the meditation retreats that I've been to, many of them, is they, you will use the phrase of many others, is may all beings be happy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't, I, that's how I used to practice, but that's not how I practice metta any, anymore, really. And, and, and I, I came across, I got really interested in metta about a year plus, a year and a half ago. And on YouTube, I came across Bhante Vimala Ramsey. I know that you know him. <laughs> uh, yes, I know him. Yeah. Uh, but I, I've, I found his teachings to be very helpful and really uh shifted my perspective on on practicing metta in particular especially mm -hmm. at that time well a lot of people like the concept in fact uh, uh metta um it tends to fit with christianity people who come out of christianity or are still in it they really like the idea of metta. In fact, uh, there was a bumper sticker that was quite common years ago, uh, and the, uh, it was a quote from the Dalai Lama. And the quote is, my religion is kindness. Yeah. Dalai Lama, all right. My religion is kindness. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, but can't it be like, I don't know. I just want to make sure that we're not talking past each other with mm -hmm. the with you with the phrase or with using the word metta because I I when I've sometimes when I've heard you when I've listened to other talks that you've given with other people mm -hmm. then uh -huh. it, it seems it seems like when you're describing this pitfall of metta of of it being magic or of it being kind of wishful thinking that you're describing it to to somebody that maybe doesn't have that you know they don't have that perspective or they they have the perspective of it being just this wish but for me when i 
I, I practiced that way for a long time, but then after kind of coming across Vimala Ramsey's teachings and then taking them on myself and really kind of troubleshooting what what's actually going on here, then it it settled the practice became taking an image or taking something that instills metta within me that instills like I'm just using the mind as a tool to bring up gladdening I've, feelings. I've heard he uses puppies. Yeah, or something. But to but to me that feels like a wholesome thing to do and is actually it I mean to me it seems like that's no different than than what you're advising to do of giving them of using wholesome directed directing the mind towards wholesome thought to bring up gladness and mm -hmm. and the, the end result is and metta, metta and, would be one of the if you had a box of items that did that you could put metta as one of the objects in that box hmm. okay that's an important point let's get back to the concept of kindness okay because basically what we're looking at is, is that it's going to be pretty hard for people to be kind to each other if they're not able to be kind to themselves. If I'm ferocious with myself, I'm going to be ferocious with other people. Yes. If I'm, okay. So this really metta then is the result of our, of our correct practice. And if you're saying, well, if I'm practicing metta in the sense of developing kindness within myself, I would say, okay, but that's just wholesome thoughts, including kindness, that we're actually re referencing metta is how we treat other people. Okay. Yeah, I understand. I, I, I get what you're saying now. And that makes sense. Okay. And I think, I think now we're, I'm, I'm clear on what you mean. Yeah, I get that. Okay. So another way of saying it is instead of saying, may all beings be happy, let's look at it as, may I, may I be happy right now? Yeah. Let me be happy. Let me be content right now. How can I wish and hope for other people to be happy if, in fact, I, ha I don't have it? Mm -hmm. So yeah. let's, let's skip forward past um well no let's go ahead and do them uh in in order the number one would be metta the number two would be karuna or um compassion now there are several ways that we do compassion and in fact the word itself compassion indicates one of the ways to not do it look at the word okay. compassion and that means with passion, all right? Our <laughs> compassion should not be passionate. In other words, just because someone else is in bad feelings does not mean that I should join them in bad feelings to help them commiserate with their bad feelings. Uh, a clear example of that is someone is just, a woman has just lost her son and no one can console her, but one of the old men came in and says, you know, just last year I lost my son. And immediately they have a connection. She will say, if you've lost your son and I've lost my son, then you understand how I feel. But yes, he understands how she feels only because he feels that way too. 
basically what we're looking at is is that real compassion has to do with wisdom in the sense of being able to see what's going on and to be able to do something correctly about it without having to join with them. An example of this then would be uh, if someone is in, in the ocean floundering and can't swim and is about to drown, does it make sense for you to jump into the ocean with them, <laughs> tie your arm to their arm, and now you flounder there together? <laughs> That's compassion. Yeah, right. Okay. What you want to be able saying. to do is to send them a lifeline to be able to see what's going on. So, in fact, you could go so far as to say then that right noble view is compassion because we're taking other people's points of view. We can see from various many different ways of looking at things, we can see what's going on. The next one is uh, mudita, which is the big one. And that is that when people are first taught about metta, they're told that you can find your joy from someone else. That if you are in competition with someone to get a job and they get the job, that it would be better for you to be joyful and happy and take them out to lunch or whatever like that. But if you're jealous, then that jealousy is going to uh, interfere in your relationship. It's not a good idea to be jealous with your boss. All right. But that's not at all what we're getting at. In fact, that is the beginner's mentality. The old expert's mentality is, is that we already are completely full of joy. We've got it. And that we cannot take that joy and give it to other people with a teaspoon. We need a steam shovel. We need a backhoe. We need a (laughs) big shovel. To keep shoveling the method or to shovel the joy, to keep giving uh, the joy that we're not going to. Let us say, here's the really close example. The man is angry. He's watching television and he's angry at um, some president or another. And the young uh, son, the meditator, walks into the room and tries to cheer up his dad. And his dad just gets more grumpy. And so the meditator just slinks off. Why? Because he doesn't have enough joy to manage his dad being all grumpy. But if he's going to practice mudita correctly, he's going to keep giving the joy and giving the joy and giving the joy until the grumpy old dad finally starts to vibrate in sympathetic joy with his son. If you are intending to cheer up someone who's angry, you can do it, especially if it's a close relative or someone that you know. Takes a little longer for a stranger, but you can get anyone. You can change their mind. You can change their uh, their um, uh, method with your mudita if you've got it. And so this is another way of looking back. Oh, we actually need the sambojana. We actually need our own practice in order to actually do the Brahma Viharas. That that's the problem with the Brahma Viharas is, is that they do not have, um, oh, how to say it? 
is is full of good intention, but it doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the strength behind it. So our own personal practice is going to be the practice of getting that power, getting that strength, getting our own attitude up to snuff so that then we can deal with the world joyfully. That we can take our log and put it in the bog and that log is just going to skim right over the top of it. It's not going to sink into it. <laughs> yeah. And so this is how we're going to practice. We're going to practice to get the mind gladdened. And you can do some of the techniques that they call metta. But metta, in fact, if it's practiced, uh, let us say, uh, to good advantage, then really it's anapanasati that they're actually practicing. Mm -hmm. Because metta is kindness for those over there but if you you can't be kind to them if you can't be kind to yourself so develop one's own kindness may i be happy right now may i be joyful may i may i get my mojo going <laughs> may i get the right attitude okay this is this is the anapanasati practice and the uh the outcome of it is uh the brahma vihara as opposed to the Brahma Viharas being practiced directly and only without all of these other attendant skills that need to be developed. The skill of mindfulness, the skill of investigation, the skill, the skill of having the right effort, the right amount of energy, having uh, that self-confidence, that, that piti sukha um, has a lot to do with the attitude, I can do it. The Buddha called himself a lion, okay, strong. And these are the skills that we develop so that we can then deal with the world with metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. So we develop these on the inside, and then we practice them on the outside. All right, so let's finish now because I've got another call waiting and okay. um, we'll um, continue on next time. But I'm glad that we're getting a few points there taken uh, into consideration. So uh, I, I consider Vila Maramsi a friend of mine. I haven't seen him, by the way, in, in more than 20 years. <laughs> but I know him. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. In the, for, in the old days, he was just metta. Now he uh, actually talks about Anapanasati. Yeah. I, I haven't heard him talk so much about Anapanasati. <laughs> he, I, he seems to be really pushing metta pretty hard if, if, uh, if you can do it. I think, I think he, I've heard him say that for some people, some personality types, it's not so much i don't know recommended or some people have difficulty with it and so then for them he goes with anapanasati instead but i don't know it's been really ben beneficial to me but just generally i'm 
thankful for your time and <laughs> thanks for being thanks for being willing to to chat and I'm glad that we've had these you know two kind of introductory conversations where we're kind of more getting to know each other and you know maybe next time um we can dive I I feel like I have a pretty good take on kind of di- like the direct things that I'm struggling with right now that are that are kind of hindering p- progress and and am looking for help kind of like slaying those dragons direct directly you know as much as possible those yeah. dragons or monsters are actually instincts they're instinctual behaviors and we'll deal with those dragons <laughs> cool it's good to call them dragon because that's what they do is they drag us down <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> keeps until them from you flying until you see them <laughs> And then they just actually, mice. actually, there's more to it than that. You can't deal with it if you can't see it. Right. But just merely seeing it is not enough. Right. Yeah. But there's you... two, two kinds of enlightenment: knowledge and deliverance. It's a, it's like walking into the room and turning the lights on, and you see what a mess you've made. What a mess this is! You don't turn the lights on it, you can't see the mess. You can't see the mess, you can't clean it up. But turning on the lights and taking a look at the mess is not the same thing as cleaning it up. Yeah. We got to keep turning that light on and keep seeing that thing and pick that up and throw it out. And then turn yeah. the light on something else and see that and pick that up and throw it out. And that's what the process is is one thing after another after another. Yeah. I should just one minute before before we go um the day after we met last or spoke last uh, the morning after i one thing that you said really stuck out in, in i was sitting and you said the you you presented the concept of dukkha dukkha naroda being the only thing that the buddha taught and that came to mind in my sitting meditation and it it like it was actually really powerful of just this kind of realization that I was and I, I was and still do often practice with this concept of I'm sitting right now or I'm, I'm walking right now. I'm practicing right now with the intent of waking up at a further point like a further time in the future but that that is 30,000 hours minimum right yeah but that but that that, (laughs) but that that like actually that that actually collapses and it's just it's just like what's right is that if if dukkha is here right now then you just up you just get it out and then that's it and until it presents itself again in what other form, and it was it was really a uh, moving uh, in in that moment at least it, it was very clear. That's the difference between a uh, a winner and a loser. The loser is the one who thinks he's got to put in a hundred thousand hours of meditation and then get results. The winner just does it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. All right. I hope you have a good okay, day. Sir. Thank you. For- All right.
We'll see you later, Simon. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Good to, good to talk to you. Enjoyable. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye.